It is irresponsible to be funding or building a coal-fired power plant anywhere in the world. And who is allowed to get away with doing that when it is not the only option for what we could be doing? So we got to get serious here. I mean, I, I am really up to here with the business as usual that is pervading places all around the world. American climate envoy John Kerry lecturing somebody about coal-fired power stations. While there's little doubt he flew into that conference on a private jet. Hello, my name is Ben Beatty, and I'm sceptical of the so-called energy transition with good reason. Truth-telling matters, so who's doing it? This episode, we look at propaganda spread by Queensland Energy Minister Mick Debrenny, Jim Chalmers' recent speech on how he's going to further undermine Australia's energy security, and we speak to Scott Hargraves, Executive Director of the Institute for Public Affairs. First up is Queensland Energy Minister Mick Debrenny, and I think it's clear Mick and John Kerry would agree on most things. Well, Queensland really needs to do the heavy lifting uh, for Australia if we're to meet our net zero uh, obligations to the rest of the world. Uh, that means uh, we need to work rapidly to transform Queensland's energy system to a low emissions decarbonised system. Now, I know the combination of politics, energy and emissions is a complex mix of the technical, the scientific, economics and social factors, but I'm pretty sure we are witnessing both hyperbole and misdirection from Mr Debrenny. Uh, that may be kind, because he's massively exaggerating Queensland's contribution to global emissions, and he's got the obligations back to front. First, it's very easy to show that Queensland's electricity sector contributes just 10% to Australia's total emissions, and that Australia's share of global emissions is just over 1%. Then, claiming we have any obligation to the world on emissions is nuts. The only obligation, if you want to call it that, uh, is the Paris Agreement which our top-tier politicians, Albanese and Bowen, upped to 43% as their first order of business on getting elected in 2022. Many people, myself included, argue that emissions reduction is worse for our society than some mild warming ever can be. In fact, the science of atmospheric physics says that for an atmospheric CO2 increase from 400 to 800 ppm, heat retention in the atmosphere increases by a measly 1%. So no... Our obligations to our allies are squarely labelled energy security. For that is what our coal, gas and uranium exports represent to our allies. Energy security. Our Minister for Energy Insecurity, Mr Debrenny, continues. We're going to do that by making hydropower the cornerstone of the Queensland supergrid. Uh, we'll deliver uh, two new significant pumped hydros, the largest of which will be the most powerful in the world at 5 gigawatt 24 hours, the Pioneer Burdekin project. Pumped hydro, of course. But I thought we were trying to get cheaper, more reliable electricity faster. Nuclear is too slow and too expensive, but the world's largest pumped hydro project is not the most powerful in the world at 5 gigawatt 24 hours. But we're great at building massive pumped hydro projects in complex situations. I mean, surely we can take a look at recent examples and, and learn from them. Former CEO of Snowy Hydro, Paul Broad, discussing some of the challenges with the Snowy 2 project. These tunnel boring machines have got to drill through you know, heaps of rock. There's 28 kilometres of tunnels, 11 metres diameter. So, and one of them has got to actually bore uphill. So they've got to come in and uh, get access to a, a cabin. And then you've got to build out a cabin, which is 400 metres long, kilometre under the mountain. So the complexity of this thing is enormous. So I'm not surprised that we've got delays. I suppose what worries me more is the lack of transmission. So you have this big power plant. It's of no use to you if you haven't got a transmission line out the front to run it into the, and where the people are. So the lack of transmission is going to be a big, big problem for us. Mistakes happen, and that was an expensive one. We firmly believe uh, that the time is now for the world to embrace hydropower. We don't think that the world can get to net zero uh, without significant and immediate investment into hydropower, just as the Palaszczuk government is doing in Queensland. And how is Snowy 2 faring again? Thank you to the ABC. It will now cost $12 billion dollars six times the initial estimate. Florence has barely moved in 19 months. And what was that Mr Debrenny said about the world is moving to hydro? In what may be a setback for India's net zero ambitions, India has stepped up the use of coal for electricity. This is in a bid to stop outages caused by lower hydroelectricity output, even as renewables struggle to fulfil the power demand. 
What else did Mr. DeBrenny have to say about these plans to replace seven government-owned coal-fired power stations with something else? The Queensland supergrid uh, will connect uh, wind farms uh, like McIntyre to the homes and businesses uh, right across Queensland. It'll put downward pressure on electricity prices. So on social media, Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it, <clears throat> when I saw this uh, post from Mr. DeBrenny about this plan, I asked him straight up. I said, do you have anything that shows that a 70% renewables grid costs less than a 70% coal grid? And I got an answer pretty quickly. The response was that there is an Ernst Young report, which shows that a, a high renewables grid is cheaper than what we have now. So let's dig into that a little bit. And no surprise, the whole thing hinges on the Australian Energy Market Operators Integrated System Plan, AEMO's ISP. In particular, the step change scenario, where all the behind-the-meter distributed energy resources, uh, infrastructure or spending, is left blank. It's unaccounted for. No one says how much this is going to cost. So this is all, of course, after-tax dollars for consumers. Of course, Ernst & Young acknowledge in their report that they were required to take on Mr. DeBrenny's assumptions in order to you know, start the report. There's some other nice bits. Uh, but they're claiming a cheaper capital than the ISP projects. They completely ignore the costs of copper string, five, six billion, who knows. They depend greatly on assumptions of electric vehicle take up, which in increases you know, electricity demand during certain periods of the day, all assumed to be favorable to the uh, assumptions supporting this plan. They arbitrarily increase coal and gas prices throughout the life of the report's scenarios. And uh, interestingly, they come up with something called the Green Premier, which is an assumption that Queensland will have reduced cost of capital because more people want to invest here because we're green, because our electricity costs more. Quick shout out to Aidan Morrison for some of those pieces of information. The propaganda continues from the Queensland Energy Minister. 12 months ago, we launched the Queensland Energy and Jobs Plan, and along with it, the Supergrid Infrastructure Blueprint. And now we've backed it, investing $19 billion over the next four years to transition Queensland into a renewable energy superpower, fueled by our world-renowned sun, wind and water, our wealth of critical minerals, underpinned by hydropower, and of course, all connected with vast new transmission. How much are you investing in the next four years and what are you going to do with it? How much transmission? $19 billion over the next four years, all connected with vast new transmission. Cheaper, right? Well, when Cogan Creek coal-fired power station, 750 megawatts, single unit, has its own mine, the coal can't be exported, and I've said it a million times, uh, during the, the energy crisis, the 2022 June energy crisis in Australia, where the gas price and the export coal price uh, went up to record levels, Cogan Creek was bidding $11 a megawatt hour. What does the Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk have to say about the whole situation? Yeah, so essentially our plan we announced today is $62 billion. We'd previously announced $2 billion and we put another, another $4 billion down, so $6 billion in total. We want a partnership with the private sector as well, but Queenslanders will own the transmission lines. We're looking at partnering with the Albanese government in terms of building these massive nation-leading infrastructure hydro pumped hydro dams in our state. And of course we know that there's snowy hydro in New South Wales, but this will be bigger. I get so disillusioned when I hear politicians speak for more than about five words. She doesn't care about the consumers, she doesn't care about the, the debt, uh, she doesn't care about the, the displaced people who are going to be fighting these dams to their, to their dying day pretty much. Uh, it's just there's just no care at all. This is this is all about appeasing somebody. I don't know a few voters in West End in Brisbane who might otherwise vote Green. Uh, I, I just don't know. This is this is crazy stuff. There are eight coal-fired power stations in Queensland. Uh, most of them fairly newly built, at least within the last thirty years. One of those is completely private, and one is a joint venture. So six and a half. This is what the 62 billion dollars of 
debt is meant to replace. Six and a half coal-fired power stations. Truth matters, right? Let's hear some. 12 months ago, we launched the Queensland Energy and Jobs Plan, and along with it, the Supergrid Infrastructure Blueprint. Now we've backed it, investing $19 billion over the next four years to transition Queensland into a renewable energy superpower, fuelled by our world-renowned sun, wind and water, our wealth of critical minerals, underpinned by hydropower, and of course, all connected with vast new transmission. Since then, we've got to work on bringing this world-leading energy transformation to life. We've increased renewable energy generation by more than 20% in the last 12 months alone. And that's in both small and large-scale generation. We've taken great strides in the continued gearing up of the development of green hydrogen and ammonia projects, enabling electrons to position Queensland as a superpower. And we've delivered on our commitments to workers and the communities in which they live, as we've started work on our clean energy hubs and existing thermal generation plants. And soon, Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk will be invited to cut the ribbon on new wind and solar farms, on big batteries, on new pumped hydro, our first offer of a scheme at Kidston, and of course, break ground at Barumba. Mistakes happen, and that was an expensive one. Usually at this stage of the podcast, I'll... I'll find the most recent interview with Chris Bowen, usually on the ABC or Renewal Comedy, something like that, to to pull apart uh, his mistruths and misdirection, uh, throw a bit of the, the goat bleating over the top to point out where it needs to be pulled up and the record corrected. But he doesn't, he hasn't done much lately. He's been a, he's been a bit quiet. So I've got a, a Jim Chalmers segment because Chalmers has seemed to have taken over the uh, the energy portfolio at the moment. And he had a keynote address to the Economic and Social Outlook Conference in Melbourne recently. But with the speech itself being a little bit dull and uninspiring, I've opted to use a couple of interviews with Patricia Carvelis on ABC Radio, where they're talking about the speech itself. I just want to take you to a very significant speech you delivered this week, where you said we're, we're not, we look like we might not be on track to meet our net zero ambitions and that we need more intervention and more investment from industry. You flagged more government interventions. What does that intervention look like? And, and might you look at altering the safeguards mechanism? Well, what I tried to do during the week, uh, Patricia, uh, is to say that we've got these ambitious but achievable <laughs> targets when it comes to the energy transformation, and we've got vast industrial and economic and employment opportunities which flow from our goals to be a renewable energy superpower. Uh, and we are making good progress uh, across both of those fronts. Uh, but from my perspective as Treasurer, what I tried to say is that what we need to do is not just to attract and commit uh, more private and more public capital, but we need to be able to absorb and deploy that investment in the most efficient and effective way. And so some of the things that we need to consider as we work towards uh, the next budget is to make sure we get the skills base, the technological base, the relationship with the state's right as well. Chalmers appears to be reading from a script here. Uh, he repeats the same talking points in the next interview. It does make me wonder if the people who interview Chalmers and Bowen and Albanese and Husic, etc., over and over and over again, do they, do they attempt to see through this charade? And so I identified in that speech, in conjunction with the relevant ministers, the big opportunities we've got in areas like critical minerals, uh, green steel, uh, hydrogen, uh, battery manufacturing. But is it about picking winners, ultimately? I mean, is that the way that it works if, if a government chooses what to invest in rather than having a mechanism that makes those decisions. Don't make the mistake of thinking Carvelis believes a market should make these decisions. She thinks the mechanism should be another function of the government, basically top-down authoritarian control markets. Who could be bothered with them? They don't always give you the right answer. Well, the mechanism is to apply what uh, we would consider to be a new set of net zero industry policy tests around supply chains and national security and value for money. Good grief. Every policy he comes up with does the opposite of what his goals are. And what's best able to deliver our emissions reductions goals. And when you do that... Ah, oh, there we go. There's the real goal. Emissions reduction. Everything else comes secondary to that. 
some of these comparative advantages that Australia has become quite obvious and I've just rattled through them. Mm. Now the incentives and the way that we work with the private sector who will be the primary driver, the way that we work with the states, that might be different for each of those four technologies that I've identified. Rest assured, the only difference will be the amount of money and what they call it. It's all taxpayer funded. But what I tried to, what I tried to do in that speech is to say that this will be a focus between now and the May budget, attracting and committing capital as part of it, making sure we can deploy it is part of that as well. The energy transformation is absolutely central to our goals in this defining decade. We've got to get it right, we've made good progress and we've got a bit more to do. Yeah, right, eh, Jim. Uh, now we cut over to the second interview with Patricia Gavellis on ABC Radio. Jim Chalmers is the Federal Treasurer and he's our guest this morning. Treasurer, welcome. Thanks for having me back, Patricia. Today you'll acknowledge that Australia will fall short of its energy targets without significant private investment from industry. So what changes are you looking at? Well, first of all, Patricia, we should recognise that the country has made really important progress over the course of the last 18 months or so. In July this year, the Australian energy regulator raised the default market offer, or the market cap, for electricity retail prices roughly 20 to 30 percent across the board. And the government is doing its bid investing, you know, $40 billion uh, in this uh, energy transformation. So we're up to $40 billion now. Uh, there's a media release on Jim Chalmers's ministerial website, which talks about the $40 billion. So here we go. $1.3 billion household energy upgrades fund, $2 billion hydrogen head start program, uh, 14 million, uh, don't care about millions. Uh, 20 billion rewiring the nation program, 800 million in support for electric vehicles, 17 billion to power net zero industries and jobs, uh, including 3 billion from the National Reconstruction Fund, 1.9 billion powering the regions fund, uh, 57 million, and 2 billion critical minerals facility, 1 billion targeted to value add in resources under the National Reconstruction Fund. Goodness me, that's a hell of a list. But I don't see any mention of the, the $10 billion Snowy Hydro or the almost $1 billion Curry Curry. And a lot of the foundational pieces of our policy are in place. And I pay tribute to Chris Bowen and Ed Husick and Madeline King and other colleagues who take primary carriage for, for these uh, policy developments. Okay, listed a few people there who are supposedly responsible for all this stuff. Let's, let's have a little bit of a chat about Ed Husick from his Parliament House biography, born in 1970, so he's 53 at the time of this recording, um, a Bachelor of Applied Commerce from the University of Western Sydney. He doesn't give a date, but it does show that in 1991, he started as Assistant Advisor to the Parliamentary Secretary for Defence. So that would be his first job out of university at the age of 21. Following that, he took a position as a senior consultant at someone called some organisation called Burson Marstella from 93 to 94. One can safely assume that had some ties to state or federal government. Assistant advisor to the Minister for Communications, Arts and Tourism from 94 to 96. 96 to 99, he was the official and divisional vice president of the Communications Electrical and Plumbing Union. And then he became a corporate affairs manager at something called Integral Energy, which turns out to be a state-owned corporation uh, in the distribution networks from 99 to 90, 2004. He was then chief of staff to the Minister for Water Utilities, Regional Development, Small Business and the Illawarra from 2005 to 2006. National President and Divisional Secretary of the Communications Division, Communications, Electrical and Plumbing Union up to 2010 and then he was elected. So, Mr. Ed Husick, one of the key players in setting Australia's electricity market policies, uh, you could just call it a subsidy policy at this stage, has no experience in the system that he's supposedly looking after. Are we surprised? Not I. We are making progress. Uh, our targets are ambitious, uh, but they're achievable. Uh, and they will require more work, more collaboration between government and industry and communities and unions. I mean, we mustn't forget the unions. They have so much skin in the game uh, for setting our electricity policies. Really everyone with skin in the game here to make sure 
that we can grab these vast industrial, uh, economic and employment opportunities. For a second, I thought Mr Chalmers was going to refer to the vast industrialisation of our landscape, but no. Uh, In the net zero economy of the future. No, no, no. There is no huge economy in net zero except for mining and exporting raw materials, which is what we do at the moment. But you're not going to get people moving any other industry to Australia because our electricity and energy costs will be so damn high. You cannot ban gas and ban coal, tax it out of existence, and then expect the royalties to pay for all this stuff. The next edition of the IPA magazine will contain my book review of Alan Finkel's Powering Up, which is the book's all about Finkel's descriptions of the challenges in the clean energy supply chain. He talks about batteries and solar panels, wind farms and electric vehicles and and hydrogen and all the rest. Um, but he, there's a clear disconnect between Finkel's optimism and the reality. And he, and he even admits this in the book. He says that getting rid of oil, gas and coal from our lives will never happen if driven by cost and convenience. And this is a universal truth. Avid energy podcasters uh, might, re- might recall Robert Bryce's Iron Law of Electricity, where he states that people, businesses and countries will do whatever it takes to get the electricity they need. But considering the Australian penchant for blowing up coal-fired power stations, I'd, I'd have to add a disclaimer to that Iron Law of Electricity and say that uh, you'll only get it if it's possible to be supplied. In chapter seven of Alan Finkel's book, the chapter titled Getting the Policy Settings Right, Finkel says this, and I quote, There is no way that the transition would be happening if it had been left to ordinary market economics or immediate end-user benefits. Solar panels would be relegated to powering orbiting satellites, and wind turbines would be spinning hard to provide power to lighthouses. Government interventions are essential to realising this unnatural transition. End quote. I think Jim Chalmers and crew took that to heart. And so what I'm doing today is I'm recognising that progress that has been made uh, and I am flagging uh, that we need to do more work together. Subsidies and targets and other interventions. Uh, This will be a focus of the budget next May. It's been the focus of the last two budgets as well. And what we need to do as we go about this important task. Important to whom, I ask? People unable to pay the high interest rates, people struggling to pay their food bills. Who is this meant to benefit? Is We need to recognise that Australia has big uh, geological, geographical, uh, meteorological, geopolitical advantages here that we need to bring to bear to the task. If Mr Chalmers went on to say that one of Australia's advantages in energy systems was 95% of the population living in 5% of the area, Therefore, you could supply most of it with centralised power stations, minimising transmission, I'd be inclined to agree. Or if he said that we have an abundance of local energy resources that can ensure our energy security if we chose to use them, for example, gas, coal and uranium, that would be that would be a good start. Uh, it's a matter of attracting investment, which is very important, but also making sure that our economy can absorb and deploy that investment as well, all of that capital. Okay. And in order to do that, we've got to get the workforce right, the technology right, the planning right, the relationships with the states right, and that's our focus. So it seems the advantages Mr Chalmers is relying on to achieve his plans is authoritarian central control of the entire system. It's got nothing to do with consumers, who are just uh, another bucket of resources to be, to be drained. So in your speech, you mentioned the incentives of the Inflation Reduction Act. The IRA in the US is worth around $500 billion, but you say you don't want to just mimic that approach. You've flagged what you describe as a uniquely Australian revamp of industry policy. But how will you encourage $225 billion, which you mentioned, of investment if you don't do it the US's way? What is your Australian way? It's going to be exactly the same, Patricia authoritarian top-down control. Remove that pesky market, make consumers choose the right things because, you know, sometimes consumers don't choose the right things. Well, first of all, we've got to recognise the Inflation Reduction Act is demand-driven and so nobody really knows what it costs. You know, it might be anywhere from the figure you quoted, half a trillion dollars, anywhere up to closer to a trillion dollars. Imagine the satisfaction that Jim Chalmers must feel as the treasurer of a major economy at being able to use the word trillion 
instead of billions. But the demand is referring to is demand for subsidies, not demand for products. And the point that I make today and the point that we've made in different ways uh, over time is our job here is to complement, not copy, uh, what other countries are doing. Uh, we do need, of course, uh, to incentivise capital, incentivise investment. It's a big focus of what we're doing. They're not even shy about talking about it anymore. Straight out of the playbook. Maybe even Finkel's playbook. But unless we can absorb and deploy that capital as well, uh, and unless we can get uh, the skills base right, the technological base right, the research, uh, the industry policy, the supply chains, the planning reforms, so that we can get big uh, renewable energy projects up and running. Unless we do all of that. What does, a- what does any of that have to do with the federal government? Absorb and deploy capital. What the hell does that mean? Getting a skills base right. For whom? To do what? Getting a technological base right. What does that even mean? The research. Who's doing the research? What for? Research into what? Supply chains. What's he got to do with supply chains? The only thing you mentioned there that has anything to do with, with the government is policy and planning reforms. Well, how about you stick to your day job? Uh, then attracting the capital won't be enough. And so one of the main points I'm making today really uh, is in complementing but not exactly copying the Inflation Reduction Act. We need to recognise we've got our own advantages. They're important. Different set of advantages mm. to other countries. <laughs> the squeaky goat's back. Uh, different set of advantages to other countries. Yeah, it's called coal, gas, and uranium, and big open landscape that we can mine them out of and then rehabilitate that ground and turn it into a park or farm on it. We have massive advantages, and the treasurer is outlining ways to get rid of those advantages, to diminish those advantages, not to capitalise on those advantages in a time of geopolitical disruption and energy crisis We've just gone through in 2022 with the Putin thing in Ukraine. Then now there's a Middle Eastern thing, you know, and it's going to happen every couple of years. Let's just look inside instead of trying to appease the UN. And like I like, like I say often, what has the UN done for us lately? Uh, but we also have uh, have other challenges as well, and we've got to get on top of those because no amount of capital that we attract will be effective unless we get all of the other pieces right. I wonder if any of those challenges he's referring to are huge supply chain cost increases in the renewables industry, if he's talking about opposition to rolling out transmission lines across farmers' backyards and disrupting their agriculture, I wonder if he's talking about even conflicts within his own uh, government's policies between state clearing and vegetation acts and his own federal Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. It seems to me the competition at the moment is to who can clear the most trees or who can kill the most native animals, maybe even some whales. You say this will be the focus of the budget next May. When you say you, we need to incentivise capital, does this mean more government intervention and spending? Subsidies and subsidies and subsidies. Well, what we're saying and really for the first time today, and again, this is a culmination of some work that Ed and Chris and others, Madeline and others have been doing. What we're saying really for the first time today is if we apply a set of tests to our net zero industry policy, you know, making sure that it's good for the energy transformation, good for our emissions reduction goals, uh, national security elements, supply chain elements, value for money. When we apply those tests, those new tests to our net zero industry policy, uh, we come up with some initial uh, industrial priorities, you know, some areas where we think we are more likely to succeed, and that is largely critical minerals, uh, manufacturing uh, battery and storage technology, uh, renewable hydrogen and its derivatives like ammonia, and also green metals. And this doesn't mean that they are the only uh, areas that attract our attention and potentially our support, but we think those four areas are where we've got the best combination of advantages. And so for each of those areas, uh, there there might be a different policy response. In hydrogen, we've already got the hydrogen head start. Critical minerals, uh, we've already got the critical minerals boost that the Prime Minister announced last week in Washington, D.C. So for different technologies, there will be different policy responses. Oh, dear. <laughs> Donald Trump, he's... Uh... Some wag put that together on uh, YouTube a couple of years ago. It cracks me up every time. 
what the treasurer is outlining there is the government picking winners. And we all know how that goes. It just, let's, let's look at some examples. Snowy Hydro, for example, the NBN, uh, any number of road and rail projects, tunnels, etc. everything costs more. Uh, and does it even work properly? I guess your roads and tunnels probably do, but your, uh, your Snowy Hydro, all these that use all these projects that come into existence through vanity project ideas and ideology, it's just destined to failure. Green hydrogen is another perfect example. You say that the Productivity Commission under the new chair you've appointed, Danielle Wood, should and will play a bigger, more constructive role in organising our thinking when it comes to climate and energy policy. Can you decode that? What does that mean? Well, we think the Productivity Commission has been an underutilised resource. You know, it is in lots of ways the, the think tank for the Australian people. The windfall wealth gains of older generations and structural budget pressures means we should at least have a sensible conversation about the possibility of taxing large inheritances. Uh, And if we care about productivity, we do, and progress and prosperity more broadly, and we do, uh, then we need to really get it engaged in a bigger, more constructive way with this energy transformation, because the energy transformation is one of the biggest challenges and opportunities that we face. Tell you what, Jim, mate, you'll find it pretty challenging to implement death taxes. Before we get into the challenges of this debate, I need to point out that the opportunities Chalmers is referring to are exclusively for industries that support his ideology. So there's no opportunities for a mining company that's getting hit with the safeguard mechanism, which is going to ratchet up every single year until they either go out of business or reduce their output so much that it doesn't matter. There are no opportunities here for the consumer who are faced with higher electricity prices and maybe even some uh, demand management down the track. The Productivity Commission's report, Volume 6, which talks about the climate transition, relies on the Australian Energy Market Operator's Integrated System Plan. I mean, how, how crazy is that? They don't challenge it at all. These bureaucracies and this government are not working in the best interests of Australians. And so what I'm going to do, really for the first time in the 25-year history of the PC, is between uh, now and when uh, Danielle Wood starts her new job on Monday week. Taxing large inheritances. uh, I'll be releasing for the first time a statement of expectations, uh, which identifies some of the priorities that Danielle and I have agreed. Taxing large inheritances. Uh, and really key amongst those will be the energy transformation. So that statement of expectation is not a usual thing. We do that with uh, regulators and other economic institutions, but we haven't done it with the PC before. And I think it's really important because we want to put the energy transformation front and centre in our economic reform efforts. I wonder what sort of economic reforms are required to incentivise more wind and solar projects. $40 billion uh, in this uh, energy transformation. Uh, we see it as crucial to the future, and that means it should be absolutely central to the work of the PC2. But the Productivity Commission report says that emissions reduction spending and policies are a break on productivity. The Productivity Commission itself wants a economy-wide carbon tax. And I quote, The centrepiece of Australia's abatement policy should be a safeguard mechanism that is broadened to include the electricity sector, includes lower greenhouse gas emissions thresholds to increase the range of facilities captured by the safeguard mechanism and lets facilities earn credits for abatement below their baselines. I find it hard to imagine a policy that could be more destructive to Australia's prosperity and productivity. The report goes further. Policy efforts to contain the costs of climate change, either by reducing emissions or by adapting to a changing climate, will also affect productivity growth. So I'd like to find what costs the Productivity Commission thinks that Australians will bear because of a changing climate. Let's see. According to the Productivity Commission, abatement measures will generally increase the direct costs of production and thereby weigh on measured productivity growth. These costs are being incurred as part of Australia's contribution to the international effort to reduce the unmitigated economic, environmental and social costs of climate change, likely benefiting all countries, including Australia. All countries, huh? China, India, US, Russia, Brazil, South Africa. Anyone care to bet who's actually reducing emissions? Productivity Commission continues. The productivity impacts of higher production costs, you know, 
due to emissions reduction policies, can be viewed as the price of reducing the chance of even greater climate-related productivity costs in the future. They call it a cost minimization exercise. Now, I don't want to get into the whole you know, climate science debate here, but I think it's important to point out what the Productivity Commission is basing their assumptions on. And here we go. The average temperature of the Earth, the average temperature of the Earth has increased by 1.1 degrees C since the Industrial Revolution. Oh my God. Warming has flowed from an increase in the stock of heat-trapping greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. The increase in greenhouse gases has come from the release of geological stores of carbon. Even if the world achieved net zero emissions tomorrow, an additional 0.3 to 1.7 degrees of global warming is estimated to be already locked in. Rising temperatures are projected to reduce the availability of land as the melting of land-based ice and thermal expansion of liquid water drives sea level rise. Some regions will experience increased rainfall while others experienced decreased rainfall. Habitable ranges for some plant and animal species will be exceeded. The geographical range of pests and diseases that can harm human agricultural production. Increase the frequency of days with temperature and humidity levels that are hazardous to human health. On the next page, it talks about physical climate impacts on key Australian industries. Some, I don't know, modeler estimates that global warming has already decreased global agricultural productivity by 29% since 1961. Someone else estimates that climate change has reduced Australian wheat yields by about 27% since 1990. But I would direct all these dingbats to the... <laughs> The stats on wheat production, which shows that it keeps going up. Quick look at the National Cropping Report. Talks about national winter crop production to fall from record highs in 2023 to just over 45 million tonnes, slightly below the 10-year average. Dry conditions in northern regions likely to result in below average yields. Southern cropping regions will get better than expected winter rainfall, leading to more favourable crop prospects. So this is, this is typical growing conditions in Australia. Some years it's dry, some years it's wet, and we're having bumper years. But according to the Productivity Commission, it's all doom and gloom. Rubbish. They talk about rising sea level, um, you know, inundating the coast, affecting 15 million addresses. I can't help wonder if Mr Rudd, Mr Turnbull... And uh, maybe they forwarded it to Mr. Obama, Mr. Cannon Brooks, who else lives on a coast somewhere. Yeah, maybe they should read these Productivity Commission reports to uh, change their, I don't know, luxury mansioning seaside habits. Maybe that's a behaviour that Mr. Chalmers's reforms will approve. And is this statement of expectations, uh, you say it's going to put this energy and climate work front and centre, what else will be centred? Well, people will see that when we put it out. Um, Can you give me by the a time. hint? <laughs> well, I think people know the sorts of things that I have been interested in revamping and refocusing and renewing the Productivity Commission for. Another perfect opening to replay Danielle Woods, chair of the Productivity Commission, who thinks that taxing large inheritances is a modern idea that will improve people's lives instead of it being a medieval idea deservedly put in the bin by Sir J.B. Peterson back in the day. You know, our big challenges are the energy transformation, adapting and adopting technology, making sure we get the human capital right in our economy uh, so that our people can be beneficiaries and not victims of the big changes that we're seeing in our economy and in our society. And so people can expect to see that reflected in the statement of expectations. But the energy transformation and our prospects as a renewable energy superpower will be absolutely front and centre. When the new head of the Productivity Commission is promoting death taxes, inheritance taxes, medieval-style unproductive death taxes, you know, what are we expecting this Productivity Commission to do for us? And Chalmers bleating on about Australians not becoming victims of this process. We already are victims. We've got the highest electricity prices ever, and every government intervention makes it worse. Just ask anybody living in a renewable energy zone or going to have their land resumed to build a massive transmission line you know, 100 metres from their house. Isn't that fantastic? Where do I sign up for those opportunities? And this myth of a renewable energy superpower that the, uh, the government keeps promoting, I'm pretty sure it's a Finkel invention. He mentions it in his book. Um, he describes shipping sunshine as 
the uh, ex- exporting green hydrogen. Now, this is uh, this is completely misleading. The reality is that producing hydrogen through electrolysis, you know, the only the only version of hydrogen with the green credentials, consumes nine kilograms of water for every one kilogram of hydrogen. We're not talking seawater. We're talking drinking water, or better. Uh, so this is more accurately described as exporting our drinking water. It's difficult to find the opportunity in that for the driest continent on the planet. And uh, that statement of expectations, um, you say it's not usual practice. The Productivity Commission has been able to go and do its own work. How, how much of it is a partnership between the government and the Productivity Commission, or is this the Productivity Commission being directed by the government? Oh, no, it's a partnership. You know, I've already had a number of conversations with Danielle Wood about it. We'll agree it. You know, what, what we put out between now and uh, Monday week will be um, a, an agreed statement of expectations. An agreement in the best interests of the government. Uh, and it's the sort of thing we do with APRA and other uh, government bodies. Um, and it's not designed to, to get into the way in the way of the independent work of the PC, on the contrary. Uh, it's designed to to put a structure around that. Uh, it won't interfere with the usual work of the PC. It will clarify that, uh, endorse that, uh, but it will also tell the Australian people um, the sorts of things that we expect the PC to focus on. And the sorts of things that the uh, the government is directing the P- Productivity Commission to focus on are no doubt going to be carbon taxes, subsidies, renewable targets. You know, how can they not? Regardless, it's unlikely that someone like Danielle would with her um, harebrained ideas, would be putting up much resistance. Scott Hargraves, welcome to the Baseload podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's great to have you on. I know you're busy uh, and I appreciate your time today. But before we get to the main talking points, uh, I have a burning question, a rumour spurred on by the Greens and the left-wing climate activists, and I'm sure you've heard of it or some version of it before, does the IPA exist to further the nefarious interests of the fossil fuel industry? Oh, the IPA has existed for 80 years, and uh, it's an institution that's really built around the human potential for freedom, for human flourishing, uh, that we believe uh, that if left to their own devices, people can do amazing things, that you know, markets are a reflection of a spontaneous order, if you like, in Hayek's famous phrase. And so we've done research on the all kinds of things uh, over the years, and uh, uh, much of it predating, of course, you know, the what we've seen around uh, climate and energy over the last 30 years. Uh, we've got, uh, I'm pleased to say, eight and a half thousand members right across Australia from all walks of life. Um, we uh, have now, we're now in a situation where the uh, uh, there aren't uh, the listed companies which might once have supported us, uh, have gone in a completely different direction. They're too busy supporting things like the voice to parliament. Uh, so the great uh, uh, corporate behemoths that we used to see on, on uh, uh, Collins Street, uh, for instance, that might have supported the IPA uh, back when there was still World War II going on. Uh, we're in a very different world now. This, this is just a movement of mainstream Australians right across the country, uh, so, some of whom are in a position to uh, donate because they believe in the future of this country. Uh, they do want to see an energy system that works. They want to see some sanity in climate debates. And that's really the base of our support nowadays. No, I appreciate that. Thank you for uh, clearing that up. Hopefully the uh, the activists will take note and uh, maybe maybe learn a bit of history and look back in time and see where you guys have come from. Um, oh, and, and, and at the risk of um, being a bit cheeky, Ben, but... Uh, Heck, uh, this is the Baseload po- podcast, and uh, I've heard you say some cheeky things over the years. Um, <laughs> you've got to be careful with these sort of ad hominem arguments from interest anyway, uh, because they can easily rebound on those who are making them. Uh, in in previous roles, I've dealt with organisations like the Clean Energy Council, uh, which is not there to promote clean energy. It's there to promote the interests of its members uh, who are trying to flog you know, wind turbines and, and solar panels. Um, and they're, they're not uh, a climate organisation. They're an organisation which is servicing that industry with its particular solutions for what Australia should do with its energy system. So I think th- this idea of always um, uh, impugning 
the direction that people are coming from, it's a game for the whole family, Ben. And uh, people have actually got to be pretty careful making it, I think. I am. I have been cheeky, and, and the Clean Energy Council is one of my favourite targets, uh, particularly when they're asking for, you know, another uh, raft of subsidies or handouts to support their uh, industry, which they say doesn't need supporting uh, in any kind of a free market. And uh, you're you're very much a free market organisation, so you would technically oppose that just on the uh, on the principle. Yes, that's right. We we would um, uh, much rather have uh, started with a baseline. We're a long way from it now, unfortunately, but started from a baseline where we are a truly fuel agnostic. Uh, that uh, the market signals uh, in the national electricity market just allow for for new generation to come on. Uh, in whatever form it's needed, whether it be, uh, you know, baseload peaking, intermediate, and indeed there can be a role for renewables in that. You know, the system can handle a, um, a certain amount of renewable energy, a certain amount of, um, of wind and solar, um, certain, you know, distributed options, all these kinds of things can be accommodated in a reasonable market, but we are a long way off that, as you say, uh, where everything is just driven by subsidies uh, and uh, the guarantees we've seen through the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and indeed many you know, quite secretive deals done by state governments now uh, to underwrite uh, new projects uh, off the books. You speak my language there, Scott. That's a lot of the things that I'm also concerned about. So you're obviously not a novice to the, to the energy sector. Uh, you're, you're speaking from experience there? Uh, yes, it's. Uh, I wouldn't call myself an energy expert, but I've certainly been around the industry uh, now since, oh gosh, uh, 1996 when I first worked on the um, uh, on the establishment of the NEM uh, with the Victorian government and the uh, uh, the privatisation process. Um, I'd, I'd come to it as a generalist economist, um, and then uh, got very interested in. Uh, the energy economics, the you know what was then you know the, this brand new field of um, of regulatory economics, of market economics. I even took myself off to a, an international association for energy and Econ economics conference in Berlin, and I think about 1998, uh, where I was introduced to the concept of of energy security for the first time, which is not something uh, that we'd had much cause to think about in Australia, to be frank. Because um, if uh, whatever the faults of the old uh, um, government vertically integrated and horizontally integrated monopolies uh, that we had across the country, whatever their faults, they had certainly delivered energy security. The great Sir John Monash had done it here in in Victoria, um, and you know we saw similar things with uh, Western Power and uh, in New South Wales and Queensland. So. Uh, it was really an eye-opener to understand the, the nuances of energy security. And then through my career, I worked with many, many energy uh, companies and also uh, government authorities. Well, that's that's some great background and some interesting look at the past. Looking to the future, you're setting up within the inside the IPA, a Centre for Energy Security. Now, the title seems fairly self-explanatory and the concept seems self-explanatory, but uh, what will it do and... More probably more importantly, why is it needed? I think it's it's certainly needed. Um, at a general level, I'd say what Australia desperately needs is more uh, alternative sources uh, of policy advice on economics. Uh, there is some good work being done uh, around the place by individual, uh, say, academics uh, or professional organisations, but really this this is a field dominated by government. Um, uh, we've, we've got a, you know, a central planners mindset, uh, even the university research institutes, you know, have to be very careful not to step out of line. Uh, we have corporations that are, that are cowed, um, by, you know, state and federal governments that basically threaten punishment, uh, if they express any reservations about, you know, the wonderful, uh, central plan, uh, that's come from, uh, you know, as embodied in the ISP and other such things. So, so at a general level, there's a need for uh, alternative advice on energy, but then at a specific level. So again, coming out of this experience where we've, I've always had energy security on the, on my mind, it's like, well, where can the IPA add value? We've got limited resources. We only have, you know, five or six key policy areas that we that we look at, and energy security seemed to me to be the missing dimension of energy policy. It's meant to be. Uh, in the classic formulation, a, a tripartite approach to looking at, obviously, the cost, 
to looking at the environmental impact, um, but then it's also meant to be energy security. And what we've done is uh, we've gone from only looking at the economics to only looking at the environmental impact and then uh, and reducing that, by the way, to one variable, which is um, uh, CO2. And energy security is just, it's not present. So by calling out a centre, not just for energy economics or a centre for a centre for doing smarter things around energy, we call it. We want to establish, and we haven't committed fully committed yet, but we're doing all the necessary work. But we would like to establish a centre for energy security um, uh, to do that energy work, but also just in the very title, call out why it, energy security is the missing dimension, and it needs to be placed front and centre at the centre of our policy making, and to recognise. And we might get into this later that. Uh, energy security is also national security. Um, you can't you can't talk about national security without considering your energy security. Again, a very uncontroversial um, concept for you know people actually experienced in this matter and independent of government. But um, so that's that's the ambition that we have been. Well, energy security certainly is national security, and and not too long ago we had something made up of bureaucrats and politicians called the energy security board. And I, I quipped on social media that uh, if we have something called an energy security board, it, it kind of intimates that we've failed at what we're trying to do in the first place. So uh, given that you're, you're talking about setting up a center for energy security seems a pretty obvious step that we're, we're missing considering that the, uh, the original intent of the politicians and bureaucracy seems to have failed or maybe that, maybe that, Maybe their mission was purely just to get more renewables in the system. Well, one of the things here is that, um, and uh, this sort of relates to some other aspects of the IPA's work, but you see a debasement of the language. And and I think O'Sullivan's, uh, one of O'Sullivan's law is that you should always assume that any institution has been occupied by a cabal of its enemies. And the concept of energy security that I'm talking about, which has been well established for 50 years, has, in that instance, was hijacked because the renewables industries face the fact that it is um, intermittent load and it's you know non-dispatchable, wind blows when it blows and the sun shines when it shines. And, and it's clearly not furthering the cause of energy security. So then what do they do? They say, ah, well, we can firm up energy. Firming, uh, we'll, we'll, firming. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll, we'll do lots of firming and, and, and that will deliver the same outcome. And, you know, how are we going to do that? Well, we're going to have, you know, pumped hydro. We're going to have uh, batteries uh, and, and we're going to have all kinds of, you know, and, we, and we're going to have uh, contracts with people to uh, stop demanding electricity, which is uh, one of my favourites. Which and We're is, going to plug the cars in and the cars are going to run everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. And, and you've well described, you know, how that doesn't work. So that to me is a debasement of language because... You're going from a system where you don't you don't really talk you don't talk about firming nuclear or firming coal-fired power stations or or firming a combined cycle gas turbine um, power station. These things just operate and they operate you know at, at, at you know somewhere between you know 70, 80, 90 percent of uh, of the of the time and they're and they're dispatchable. And so an energy security board, I think, as you intimated to me is a little bit Orwellian because it's saying, uh, well, let's just assume that we're moving through an energy transition towards renewable energy. And then our job is just to plug the gaps in that, to somehow firm that up. So it was a it was a doomed endeavour um, and reflecting a really Orwellian twisting of the language. I, I agree. Um, you speak to a wide variety of people, politicians, business leaders, media. Is anybody taking this seriously enough out there? Oh, well, there are certainly some, and and um, uh, and there are certainly you know, the closer to the coal phase people are, I think you know the the the, the more concerned they are. It's it's not those who are sitting in Canberra, um, uh, in the corridors of power, dreaming up uh, or signing off on the central plans. Um, there are certainly people at the coal face, and as I say, there are individual academics and researchers out there, um, you know, who have an understanding but are nervous about what they can say, but. I'd have to say across the board, there is, no, no, there is a completely insufficient level of understanding. Um, I was struck many years ago uh, by something said by uh, John Pierce, um, who was, uh, is a 
uh, a veteran, if you like, of, of uh, a pragmatic tradition in New South Wales policy making, uh, became head of the Australian Energy Markets Commission. He'd been right through uh, the power industry in, in New South Wales. And he said, one of the things you've got to understand is that the, 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 the energy system is more than just the NEM or it's more than just the gas market. It's it's everything around it. It's your capacity to access finance. It's your capacity to uh, get permits for the things that you need. You can't make assumptions about things like new entrant pricing unless new entrants have the capacity to come into the market. It's the um, ability to engage with government and get sensible outcomes and to understand how all these things fit together. And um, I think John Pierce. I think had that capacity for a bit of systems thinking that is missing in the overwhelming uh, majority of people now forcing their will on the energy system or attempting to force their will on the energy system. Uh, there's just a, a lack of understanding about how it all fits together. And hence we get very unrealistic plans. I think, I think you're right. I, I think it's a bit simpler than that. I think there's a whole bunch of people with a, with an agenda pushing uh forcing this these products into the system and i think the we could go down that rabbit hole uh a bit deeper but your the the center for energy security will be focused on australia's energy security uh in as a priority i imagine but the to me it seems the entire western I'll, world I'll could come use back a focus that. yeah I'll, sure. I'll, I'll come back to that. Sorry, I, reckon, sorry um, I should have let you finish your question. Sorry, say it, that again. I think the entire Western world could use a focus on, on energy security. So developing countries are laser-focused on their energy security. Think of what happened to Pakistan last year when uh, they were waiting for their LNG deliveries, at which Germany then outbid them and bought them, and the ship turned around and went back to Europe. Um, are there any overseas organizations looking at this, or is or are we so far behind the ball that we need to innovate in this area? Oh, no, no, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, and not just uh, less developed countries like Pakistan. Of course, you, you, you take um, a great you know, a friend of Australia like Japan, um, which, you know, because it lacks uh, natural resources, um, has always had a, a focus on energy security and, and access to resources. And, and of course, and if we stuff the... around with royalties and markets, they'll turn and look at us and say, well, you're undermining our energy security. Please stop. Exactly. And and that's already happening. You know, we, we, we've now heard, you know, we had um, uh, a, a very uncharacteristically outspoken uh, ambassador from Japan. Uh, and then we even had, the you know, the prime minister um, having to uh, you know visit Australia and, and say very direct things to the Australian government that they are now deeply, deeply concerned that uh, by uh, that by um, putting the clamps on the prospects of future uh, coal and gas exports, uh, that their ability to actually provide energy security for their own people is undermined. This has a geopolitical um, uh, dimension because this is an organisation that we're a member of with the Quad. And uh, so the Centre for Energy Security is actually, and sorry, this was the part where I rudely interrupted. Um, it is focused on energy security as it, applies domestically to our system, but it is also trying to raise awareness of Australia's place in the world. Um, we, we export energy security. Absolutely. Uh, and we're blessed that we're in a position to do it. Uh, as we know, and as a, you know, you've observed many times, and, and, and then we have the pragmatic reality that if you can't get coal from Australia, you'll get it from Indonesia. If you can't get gas from Australia, you'll have to get it from somewhere else. I mean, do the, do, does that force the Japanese into a discussion um, with the Russians? I mean, we've seen India, of course, um, you know, they've looked to Australia for energy security through coal. Uh, but of course, it took Adani 10 years to get those um, permits and and more recently they've continued to draw on you know Russian Russian fossil fuel supplies mm. at a time when they were being encouraged to turn their back on Russia the Indians said no energy security is Trump's so if we don't recognise that reality Australia is just in in dreamland frankly it's incredible that we need a uh, like someone outside government bureaucracy to point this out to our uh, politicians. Uh, on a separate note, overseas, still overseas though, Rishi Sunak recent, recently acknowledged that uh, emissions reduction hurts people. He didn't say it so much, but he he seemed to say in a bit of a walk back of some of his policies that uh, they hadn't thought it through, they hadn't costed it well enough. Uh, did you catch that? And what's your thoughts on that? 
um, I certainly have caught that. I'm incredibly interested in that. And I'll, and I'll be in, uh, as it happens, I'll be in London um, towards the end of the month. And, and I, I'm looking forward to some discussions around our ambitions for energy security, because I think we are now seeing across the, the West, um, which is the, you know, the spiritual home of net zero, um, the first cracks appearing. I don't know that we've passed peak net zero um, at a practical level, but certainly at an intellectual level, I think we've passed peak net zero. Um, Sunak uh, hasn't uh, disavowed it. He hasn't walked away from it, but he said, gee, there are these other factors. Mm. Energy security is one. So he, he now, and this, you know, only a politician could do this. He now has a minister for energy security and net zero. Sounds like someone um, you'd like to talk to. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But I, I also feel deeply for them having to uh, reconcile uh, what might be conflicting objectives. But yes, and they've, <laughs> uh, as you know, they've all also issued uh, more leases in uh, the North Sea gas fields, um, uh, which has been greeted with horror. Uh, they had a very realistic approach to the last um, uh, auction for offshore wind farms, which result resulted in no new projects being approved. Mm -hmm. And that was basically because, you know, they're hugely um, uh, expensive um, and pretty much useless. So I mean, the, uh, the, the activists like to say that wind and solar improve your energy security because you're not dependent on overseas fuel imports. But the problem is if you're if you can't build enough of the wind and solar to keep up because it has a short lifespan and it, and offshore wind is hugely expensive to build, your supply chain is way more strung out than just a, a coal mine next door to your power station. So they're incredibly exposed to energy insecurity. If someone stops building wind turbines or if they say, oh, actually, the copper is going to cost more or the steel is going to cost more and you don't make it yourself, you know, that's a definition of insecurity. Oh, exactly. No, very point, very well made. And this is the sort of research that we um, would, would um, well, which we will do regardless of whether we set up formally a centre out, out the IPA's work on energy will um, uh, continue. And, and of course, the one area where uh, we are exposed is in uh, petroleum. Um, as you know, we I think practically we only have about three days um, uh, reserves in, in country. Uh, we're evading our IEA obligations. And but again, the, the use of language by the uh, renewable energy industry is just astounding that uh, at the time of the invasion of Ukraine, when suddenly there was a renewed focus on energy security, they said, ah, well, of course, we wouldn't need all these petroleum imports if we just went moved to complete electrification. And complete electrification, I mean, the, the, I wrote an article back in August 2022. I think the calculations were, we're talking about tripling the energy output of the domestic electricity system when mm. we can barely replace the baseload power stations that are already being closed under the government plans, let alone tripling it. And then, you know, the actual scenario of uh, when the current generation of solar panels runs out. So in 15, 20 years, we have to go back to the Chinese and say, please, will you give us some more solar panels so that we can power the electric cars that we just bought from you um, and, and, and hope that the system can support all this. It's just, these are just lunatic fantasies. It does. It does. Uh, that these people must suspend. Well, actually, I was going to say they must suspend the um, their faculties, but I think I think a lot of them do have their faculties present. It's just that the the uh, the agenda for the sector over overrides the concern for the the citizens. And I and I don't actually blame um, like the renewable energy lobby. They're basically just doing the best they can for themselves. I blame the uh, partly the gullible politicians, partly the politicians who think there's votes in it. Um, I'm not sure how many votes will be in there for uh, Chris Bowen and Anthony Albanese with their, their current policy of net zero. How um, how bad can net zero get in Australia before there's a tipping point, peak net zero hits reality and the voters say no thanks? Yeah, well, I think um, I'm, I'm talking to an engineer, so I guess your question is what's what's the failure mode? Um, is it an all at, all at once uh, kind of thing? Uh, or is it one of those things where uh, mankind seems to uh, develop obsessions from time to time, but they seem to have a bit of a shelf life? And, does it you know, does it shuffle up? Does it shuffle up the economic ladder as as you get to a new rung? All the people below say no, and all the people above are still attached to it because they can afford it. 
Yeah, there's definitely a dimension here of, um, you know, uh, an elite versus uh, mainstream uh, dynamic. Uh, we've seen we've seen this repeated across society in so many things, and and uh, and you know, <laughs> I'd, I'd be less averse to you know the elites dominating policy making if 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 they weren't letting their own sort of post materialist preferences influence so much what they're trying to do, and and being so removed from the coalface, uh, and <laughs> so to speak. I, even actually, just as an aside. You know the realities of these things. I mean, in a previous life, I I got planning permits for high voltage transmission lines, and uh, and that took three years to get permits uh, for I don't know, I think it's twenty kilometres or something like that. And and th and then when I hear um, uh, the, the wonderful Minister for Climate Change and Energy in Canberra, you know, talking about we're going to have ten thousand kilometres of transmission lines across Australia built, this this is how far removed the elites are from the realities of these things. So what's what's the failure mode? Uh, it could be all at once. It could be catastrophic. Um, uh, there's, uh, you know, goodness me, what if what if Donald Trump gets back? As I read this morning, you know, net then net zero is dead. Now, yep. who knows? But more more likely, perhaps, is that we just in the meantime we start to reorient priorities. Uh, but the immediate failure mode facing Australia is this issue that we are closing down our base load power stations without any replacements being built of any kind. There's a drought on renewable energy investment. Um, uh, there's uh, government plans to step into the breach, all of which are behind schedule, uh, facing cost blowouts, uh, exhausting the community. You know, Queensland government throws around figures of $62 billion and, and you know, and, and plus, plus, plus. Um, at some point, people are just going to say this this isn't realistic. Even if you could develop this plan, it's not a good plan. And and it's just it's undeliverable. So what's the failure mode? I don't know. Scott Hargraves, uh, on that delightful, uplifting note, thank you for joining me. Thanks for your time. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a week. In the meantime, if you like the podcast, hit the like button, subscribe, tell your friends.